thanks a lot. Okay, today's reading is from uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with her, his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her uh, head uncovered dishonors her head, since, since it is the since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her head, her hair, sorry, or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is in, uh, the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. <clears throat> Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angel. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. <coughs> The head of a wife is her husband. Woman is the glory of man. And a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of angels. So if you're a first-time visitor with us today, thank you for joining us for your, ver your first and most likely your last visit with us. <laughs> Considering today's passage, this may also be my last time as well. We'll see how the sermon goes and if I get run out of town after a service. Now, in all seriousness... We've come to what is considered by most commentators to be the, one of the most difficult passages in all of 1 Corinthians and one of the more difficult passages in all of the New Testament. However, when we persevere, when we do difficult things, we gain a benefit. You know, the more difficult your exercise routine, the, the more it builds up your strength in your body. The, the more difficult your academic course of study, the more it builds up your mind. And when we come to difficult biblical passages, we can expect that if we put the work into it, that we will be equally strengthened in our understanding and in our faith. So buckle in, because if we hope to understand this passage at all, we must begin by laying some important groundwork. And if you haven't already, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, or Kevin printed it for us. In today's uh, bulletin, or in the Pew Bible, it's page 1138, but make sure you have it in front of you because it, it's going to help you as we go through it. And also, if you haven't already, take out your pen to take notes because I promise you there's at least going to be some notes you're going to want to take because we're going to deal some really foundational questions today to understand a complex passage like this. And at the end of the sermon, if you still have questions, you can send an email to patmccafferty at gmail.com, and he would be glad to answer any and all questions that you have remaining after today's study. Thanks, Patrick. Now, for us to begin to understand today's passage, we need to begin by understanding three foundational questions before we can even begin to approach the passage itself. Three foundational questions. The first one, when approaching a difficult passage in the Scripture like this, can truth be known, or are we just left guessing and just left opening to interpretation? That's your interpretation, it's my interpretation. Now, when we're addressing a difficult passage like this, 
friends, I, I had an extended discussion on how we might approach something like this, interpretation and understanding of difficult passages or any passage. On June 17th of 2018, I preached a sermon titled, That's Just Your Interpretation. And I asked Kevin, and he made sure he re-uploaded it. If you want to go back and hear in-depth the discussion of this, which is really important as we approach any scripture, it's right there on our feed. It's on, the, it's on Google Play. It's on iTunes. It's, on, it's anywhere that you listen to our sermons. But again, it's called That's Just Your Interpretation. And it deals with the question of how do we address and understand difficult passages of scripture like this. And friends, I'm going to summarize here the bottom line. The bottom line is good interpretation is we need to understand and we want to understand the intended meaning of the author. Even if a passage is unclear or easily misunderstood, we want to understand what the author meant. The Bible wasn't written as some kind of a spiritual Rorschach test. What do you see in this? What do you feel when you look at this? No, there's actual meaning in the words. There's a truth to be comprehended. Our job is not to supply meaning to the text. Our job is to understand the meaning of the text. So even when it's a difficult passage, there is a meaning. It's not just open to interpretation and how you feel about it. There is a right and a wrong understanding, even when there's disagreement, even when it's unclear. Here's an example. Uh, on the issue of baptism, our church believes that the Bible teaches baptism is reserved for those who've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and baptism is rightly administered by fully immersing a person in water. But my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, they believe the Bible teaches baptism can be administered to an infant based upon the parent's profession of faith and their intention to raise the child in the covenant community. They also believe that baptism is rightly administered not only by full immersion, but could be administered by the pouring or sprinkling of water. And friends, historically, Christians of good faith who believe in the authority of Scripture have disagreed on this. But that doesn't mean that there's no right answer. At the end of time, when Jesus returns, he's going to make all things known, and he's going to show those on both sides how their interpretations were wrong. But in the end, one interpretation will be shown to be closer to the Lord's intention for baptism than the other. There is still a right answer, even if it's not yet known. Even if it's disagreed upon, there is still a truth and a right interpretation. So, our goal in studying a passage like this is with the light that we have, we're not just shooting blind at the darkness, but with the light that we have, we're aiming to understand correctly what is intended by the passage. So even if 1 Corinthians 11 is difficult to understand, there is a right way to understand this passage, and some interpretations will be closer to the target than others will. Are you with me? Make sense? All right. I hope so, because this principle, this principle applies not just to difficult passages, it applies to all passages. Our goal in reading the Bible is to understand the intent of the author. We want to understand what they were trying to say. And as we try to interpret and apply a passage like um, 1 Corinthians 11, some people might look at that and go, well, this was all just cultural. I mean, it was written into a cultural situation. So for whatever it says, we should just read it, treat it as like a cultural curiosity, and then we can move on with our lives. But friends, when we approach Scripture, we need to remember something. Every single passage of Scripture that you read in the Bible was written into a particular cultural context. All of the Bible was written into a particular culture. None of the Bible came to us just in a vacuum. And so, yes, Paul did write into a culture in 1 Corinthians 11, and that culture is very different from our culture today. But what we have to determine are the truths that transcend time. The truths about God, about humanity, and how those truths apply to us today. Here's another example. For example, five times, five times in Paul's letters, he gives a command, an imperative command, and it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And friends, not a single one of you puckered up when I walked towards you today. 
Now, the specific cultural practice of greeting one another with a kiss is not practiced in American culture, but you can still travel to other cultures in the world today where they will greet you with a kiss. Enthusiastic kisses on the cheek sometimes. But in our American culture, the biblical principle that's underneath that of warmly greeting and welcoming one another, we do still practice that, but with a handshake or or a hug or a verbal greeting. So the principle is a warmly greeting and welcoming one another. The practice might be different because the culture is different, but the principle remains the same. And we seek to welcome one another in the name of Christ and to build those relationships. So the expression may be different. It may be cultural. The principle is still applicable. So we can't just write off 1 Corinthians 11 wholesale and say, well, this is just irrelevant. It's a cultural relic. I mean, it's tempting to do that because a confusing passage. You're like, I wish I could just put this one aside. But no, we need to understand what it's teaching and what applies to us today. Okay? Still with me? Still got you? Okay. Thank you. Now, the second point that we need to talk about when we come to a passage like this is the question, does the Bible oppress women? You've probably heard that. The Bible oppresses women. And when we come to a passage like 1 Corinthians 11, we hear things like the head of a wife is her husband, woman's the glory of man, the wife should have a symbol of authority on her head. We, we immediately recoil. I mean, the passage seems to reinforce this oft-repeated claim that the Bible oppresses women. But church, when we rightly understand it, we actually discover that the Bible rightly lifts women. And the foundation for women's rights in the Western culture is actually built upon the Scripture. The truth is that the Bible and Christianity have been the force that has brought the greatest liberation and dignity to women of anything else in this world. If you want to read a short yet powerful treatise about this, I recommend to you Rebecca McLaughlin's Secular Creed. Engaging five contemporary claims. I know a group of our women read this together earlier this year. And that's where many of the facts that I'm about to talk to you about come from. Because she addresses this head on. The truth is, the Bible is and has been a force for the elevation of women through, around the globe and throughout history. You see, unlike other ancient Near Eastern creation myths, the Bible alone dignifies women by offering an account of their creation. Most other ancient creation myths either ignore women or treat them basically as defective males. But the Bible gives us an account of the special and specific creation of females. Unlike ancient Near Eastern religions and documents, the Bible alone gives women dignity by arguing in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 that both male and female are created in the image of God and both are given dominion over all creation. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. The Bible says both male and female created in the image of God, both given dominion over all of creation. And the Bible further lays the foundation of the equality of men and women in Genesis 2.18, which says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. You see, God had created man out of the dust of the earth. However, seeing man's aloneness, the Lord declares, This is not good. And such the Lord purposes to make a helper fit for him. The word helper which is in Hebrew, ezer, does not imply inferiority because that same word is used repeatedly in the Psalms. God is my ezer, my helper. So whatever helper means, it can't mean inferior because God is named and called our helper. And when it says a helper fit, the word is neged, which literally means corresponding. You see, she was a left to man's right. 
He was a salt to his pepper, a day to his night. They were a matched pair. So God's remedy to man's aloneness was not to create someone lesser than him, but someone to come alongside him, a corresponding equal, a partner, part of a matched set. And this is further demonstrated in how Genesis 2 records that the Lord created man, or created woman. In Genesis 2.22, it declares that the Lord put Adam into a deep sleep and removed a rib from his side, and then the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So the creation of woman from man's side further emphasizes the equality and complementary nature of male and female. Well, friends, what's the point of all this? Israeli historian Yuval Noah Harai explains in his book, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, this is what he says. Americans got the idea of equality from Christianity, which argues that every person has a divinely created soul and that all souls are equal before God. However, if we do not believe in the Christian myths about creation, about God, creation, and souls, what does it mean that people are equal? Friends, you've got to understand, this idea of equality is not one that existed in the ancient world. In the Greco-Roman culture into which 1 Corinthians was written, when Paul wrote this letter, they didn't believe men and women were equal. In his book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, historian Tom Holland argues that Western culture, our basic beliefs about human equality, came completely from the Bible. He says every human being possessed an equal dignity wasn't even remotely self-evident. The Roman world would have laughed at it. The origins of the principle lay not in the French Revolution, not in the Declaration of Independence, or in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. Friends, we have our idea of the equality of humanity and the equality of men and women. We get that from the Bible, and Western thought gets it from the Scripture. The Bible is the foundation for women's rights and freedoms in the Western world. And if you want evidence of that, Think of anywhere else in the world where women fare better and are afforded greater rights and opportunities than in cultures influenced by Western or Judeo-Christian ideals. If you go to the Middle East, women are certainly not afforded freedom and dignity. It's in the cultures influenced by Western, by biblical ideals that women are given equality and dignity. And as such, friends, women have always been a prominent part of the church. Historian Rodney Stark, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, argues that despite the fact the Greco-Roman Empire into which Paul was writing was disproportionately male, he says that it's estimated there were twice as many women in the church as men. And friends, that still holds true today because globally, women are more likely than men to identify as Christians and to attend church services. In fact, the modern-day underground church in China is estimated to be two-thirds female, despite the fact that China is disproportionately male. Friends, when people dismiss Christianity as sexist, the irony is that both globally and here in the United States, it is not white men, but black women who are most likely to identify as Christian. The average Christian globally is a black woman. Friends, statistically, Christianity is not an old white man's religion. If the Bible, if the Bible is so misogynist, and oppressive to women, why are so many women attracted to Jesus Christ? Why is it that Christianity is and always has been disproportionately women? Friends, the truth is that Christianity is not a force of oppression to women. Historically, the Bible has been a force of elevation for women. And when we read the New Testament, we have to understand it as it would have been understood in the original cultures. And in doing so, we discover how Jesus consistently elevated women in his ministry. If you read the Gospels, friends, we see Jesus allowing women to follow and support him throughout his ministry. No self-respecting rabbi of that day would have done that. 
In that culture where women were ignored or belittled, Jesus is recorded in the Gospels as regularly speaking to women, healing women, even allowing women to sit at his feet and learn as a disciple would. When all the male disciples fled, who was left standing at the cross witnessing his crucifixion? But women. And friends, in a culture where women couldn't even give testimony in court because their testimony was considered unreliable, God chose women to be the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection that first Easter morning. The book of Acts and all of Paul's letters reveal the prominent role that women played in the life of the early church. And in fact, in today's passage, which might to our ears initially sound negative, it actually reveals a culturally shocking positive. In verse 5, which Ann Kutzer read for us, it says, But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, before we dissect what's happening here, just notice there's an assumption. The assumption was that women were going to pray and to prophesy in the gatherings of the church. Friends, women in that culture were not allowed to participate in this way in the other religions. In fact, in many worship settings, if women were allowed to participate at all, that men and women were completely separated in their worship. So the fact that women were not only allowed to be in worship, but were expected and given instructions on how to pray and prophesy in worship was earth-shattering to that culture. Friends, the truth is that when we understand the cultural context into which the Bible was written, we consistently see that the Bible values and exalts women and their worth compared to the cultures of its day. So whatever is going on in 1 Corinthians 11, it in no way is meant to devalue or oppress women. Because even in saying women can pray and prophesy in the worship gatherings of the church, it was a clear elevation of women and their status. Are you with me still? I know you guys are like, whoo! He's, he's got to breathe sometime. Okay, finally, friends, we need to consider before we can even touch this passage, what does the Bible teach about men and women? What does the Bible teach about men and women? And as we've already seen in the creation account, women are created, and women and men are created equal. And women and men are created distinct. In Genesis 1.27, it says women, men and women are equally created in the image of God. That's deeper than cultural expression. That's deeper than feeling. Something distinctly and immutably is man. And distinctly and immutably, unchangeably is woman. Man and woman are equal, but we also find that they are distinct. They're not changeable. And they're not interchangeable. We find that man and woman are equal yet distinct. And we also find that man and woman have been given different roles. Scripture teaches that in the biological family and in the family of God, a man is called to protect, to take responsibility, and to lead. In the marriage relationship, a man is called to lead. Now, to make this clear, in the marriage relationship, no one is in control, but somebody has to lead. This isn't about control. This is about leading. And consider with me a key teaching on this from Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21, it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Now to understand what this means and what this idea of submission means, let's understand what this command doesn't say. First, it does not command submission because women are inferior. You know, the exact same verb, submit, is used in verse 21. You saw it where it says, believers, you should submit to one another. And that says specifically, wives, submit to your husbands. So clearly, this can't be communicating inferiority. Secondly, the command doesn't equate submission with obedience. It doesn't say, wives, obey your husbands. In fact, if we kept on reading in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, the word for obedience is used when it says, children, obey your parents. So submission is not obedience. 
like it is a parent and a child. And finally, whatever this command on submission is saying, notice it doesn't say all women submit to all men. It says wives submit to their husbands. And then it goes on um, from verse 22 in verses 23 and 24 to call the husband the head of the wife. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, just note right here this language of, of head and submission, because we already heard it, and Kusa read it for us in 1 Corinthians 11, and it will be part of the discussion. So this command has to be understood in the context of the social relationships that existed in the Greco-Roman world at that time. Friends, you need to understand, with the liberating message of Christianity lifting up women from where they were, Christianity threatened the status quo. Uh, as, as Christianity lifted women, their status and their worth, Christianity's opponents often accused Christianity of disrupting and destroying the social order. And so instructions such as this one were offering an apologetic. It was trying to, to reduce the offense of Christianity. For, for example, in Titus 2.5, Paul wrote that younger wives should be submissive to their own husbands that the word of God might not be reviled. So against those that are accusing Christianity of upending everything, they said this is an apologetic. We don't want the word of God to be reviled, to be misunderstood. So we should note that in stark contrast to the beliefs of Greco-Roman society, Paul clearly defines the relationship between husband and wife as equals. Greco-Roman society put few obligations on a husband, besides providing food and shelter, and otherwise they were largely unchecked, unaccountable, and they could do whatever they wanted, and their wives were simply subjugated below them. And so Paul starts and says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Nobody would have blinked. But then he goes on in verse 25, and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Friends, do you remember when Jesus came to earth and he stomped around demanding his rights and his way and threw his weight around? No, I don't remember that either. Because that's not how Jesus came to love his church. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to love His church. He gave up His rights. He gave up His life to love His church. And so Paul says, Husbands, the way that Jesus loved His church, you should be loving your wives. Men, you're called to love your wives by leading your families. And if the husband is called the head and being asked to lead, then he needs to lead the way that Christ the head leads his church. And how is that? Through love. Jesus taught what leadership looks like in Mark chapter 10, verse 42. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Husbands, your wives and your children are not there to serve you. You are to lead by loving and by serving, by putting their needs and their well-being above your own. Husbands, when a sacrifice has to be made, you should be the one to volunteer. When rights need to be given up, husbands, you should be the first to offer. When there's a job that neither one of you wants to do, you should step forward. When there's responsibility to take for improving your relationship, husbands, you should take the first step. Like Christ, you should be the initiator. Remember, Jesus took the lead with his church. There was a rift between humanity and God. And God didn't sit there and wait until we apologized. He took the initiative and Christ came for us. And in the same way, husbands lead by taking the initiative. If your marriage is unhealthy, you take the initiative to make it healthy. If there's unresolved conflict, stop harping on her. Stop waiting for her to change. You take the lead. You own your part. You confess your sin. You address your own issues. If the passion is gone in your relationship, you take the initiative to ignite 
the flame. Men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And Paul goes on in Ephesians 5 and verses 28 and 29, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Husbands, is your leadership and your care of your wife nourishing and cherishing her? Are you bringing out the best in your wife? Are you supporting her dreams and helping her to flourish? Are you cherishing and nourishing her uniqueness? You are called to lead your wife by loving her in a way that cherishes and nourishes her, her uniqueness and helps her become all that God wants her to be. And church, when men don't lead, when men don't lead, disaster follows. Consider what we learned from the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. Genesis 1 and 2, which we've already looked at, God created all that exists. He made everything good. He created Adam and Eve, man and woman. He put them in the garden to enjoy. And He gave them one command. The tree of knowledge of good and evil, do not eat of it. But Genesis 3 says the serpent came to Eve in the garden, called into question what God had said, called into question God's goodness, tempted her to eat from the tree forbidden, to Adam and Eve, and Genesis 3, 6 tells us, So when woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Did you catch that last part? Where was Adam when all this happened? Where was Adam when his wife was being tempted by the snake? He was standing right there, passively doing nothing. Friends, when we read this account, you might ask, who sinned first, Adam or Eve? And you might say, well, Eve ate the fruit first, but friends, I believe Adam sinned first. Adam sinned against Eve and he sinned against God by abdicating his responsibility to lead. If we look back, Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, Adam alone received the command from the Lord about the tree. Eve wasn't created until five verses later in Genesis 1, 21 and 22. So the command of the Lord came to Adam before Eve was created. That means Adam failed to either teach the word of the Lord to his wife, Or, when his wife was there being tempted, he failed to step in and say anything. He was passive. He didn't speak up. He didn't protect. Adam failed to lead. And as such, friends, Scripture holds Adam accountable for humanity's fall into sin. Eve might have eaten the fruit first, but Scripture holds Adam accountable. Romans 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sin. Sin came through Adam. Eve isn't even mentioned here. Because Adam sinned first by failing to lead. He was the head. He was created first. He should have taken responsibility to love and protect his wife, but he chose passivity. He abdicated responsibility and sin entered the world. And friends, you've seen it. That same pattern is destroying our culture today. As I work With young men and young married, more and more men seem content to revert to and remain in a perpetual adolescence. More and more of our young men and young husbands today are more interested in video games, sports, and self-seeking pursuits than leading and loving their wives and their families. And when a man refuses to grow into a man and remains in a perpetual adolescence, when a man does not lead, well, what happens? The wife has to step in. She often doesn't want to because no woman wants to risk being called controlling or nagging. But friends, if the husband won't lead, someone has to. And then the wife becomes bitter because her husband won't take responsibility. Her husband never initiates. And so it all falls upon her shoulders. And the man becomes more passive. He lets his wife take care of him just like his mommy used to. Or he becomes bitter and withdrawn And says his wife's just a controlling nag. Men, you are called to lovingly lead and serve your wives and families, not to be passive 
like Adam was. And just one more note about the husband-wife relationship from Genesis 3. After humanity fell into sin, the Lord spoke of sin's disruption to the husband-wife relationship in Genesis 3.16. It says, To the woman, the Lord said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And those words about the a desire contrary and him ruling over you. Those are negative words. Them fighting words. Because of sin, there's going to be trouble in the marriage relationship. And this statement here talks about the husband ruling over his wife, controlling her self-serving power. And friends, here's the two poles of temptations that men face. Either to be like Adam, completely passive, or to become controlling and domineering over their wives. We're tempted to either become adolescents or dictators in the home. And God says, no, no, you're not called to be an irresponsible, passive adolescent. And you're not called to be a controlling, manipulating dictator. You are called to lovingly lead your wife and your family. And friends, in the same way that Scripture teaches that men are to lead in the biological families, we find multiple places in the Scripture that men are called to lead in the family of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3 offers an extended discussion of the qualifications of those who would lead in the church, of the elders. And in 1 Timothy 3, he makes clear that elders are to be men, and how are those men to lead in their households? 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's household, the church? There's a relationship between a man's leadership in the household and a man's leadership in God's church. And Paul makes this even clearer just a few verses later. 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. He he says, the church is God's household. And men, you are to lead well in your own household. And men, you are to lead well in the household of God. Not as passive adolescents, not as controlling dictators, but as loving leaders. Love and serve and take leadership. And with all of that context, you remember, Adam, you've barely touched on 1 Corinthians 11, and we've been sitting here for a long time. Can we look at that? Let's look at that, and I promise it'll make a lot more sense having laid this foundation. Look at 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul writes into the mess that is Corinth, And he says, 1 Corinthians 11.3, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Now, we already saw this language of headship back in Ephesians chapter 5. The Greek word that's translated here is kephale. And friends, you could go out right now and you can go to Amazon and you could order books. Not just one, but a whole bunch of them all about the meaning of this one word, head, kephale. Because people are desperately trying to prove that head doesn't mean what it clearly means in this passage. Because people don't like the plain implications of this word. Head means, they say head head doesn't mean authority. It means like source. Like we talk about headwaters of a river. That's the origin of the river. And so they're trying to say that head here means source. And so the the source of man is Christ because he created us. And the source of woman is man because woman was created from man. But then you have to do some crazy linguistic gymnastics to explain the last part, saying that God's the source of Christ. Because Christ was not created from God. He was not created by God. Christ is God. He always has been, always will be. So the best understanding of this word kafale or head, is that it means exactly what it appears to mean here. Authority. Men submit to Christ the head. Wives submit to your husband as head. Christ submits to God as head. He's talking about authority, about order here. Now, as a vitally important note in these instructions, 
when he talks about the relationship between Father and Son, when he talks about God the Father and God the Son, we remember the Trinity. God is one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, equally God, equal in all attributes. But yet it says that Christ submits to God the Father. So if Christ submits to God the Father, it's not because Jesus is inferior to God the Father. He's equal to God the Father, but yet in His role He submits. And in the same way, friends, man and woman, woman is in no way inferior to man. Woman and man are equal, yet different roles. And it says, just as Christ submits to God, wives wives submit to your husband. It's a difference in roles, not a difference in value or competency. You see, we find that the concern of 1 Corinthians 11 is the right ordering of relationships and making sure that that's evident in the worship of the church. Again, as we noted, Christianity caused social upheaval in the time of the Greco-Roman culture. Women were elevated in ways they'd never been elevated before. And friends, when there are new freedoms, there's always new excesses. It seems that some in the church in Corinth might have taken their newfound freedoms too far. They were casting off all order. They were disregarding social customs. They were erasing any distinctions between man and woman, causing scandal. And so Paul gives the strange commands to our ears in verses 4 and 5. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. So Paul says, listen, remember the correct order is, is that Christ is the head of man, husband's the head of their wives. And then Paul says, dress and worship in a manner that reflects the right order of things. You see, Paul, um, Paul talks about men covering their heads. In that culture, men often would have covered their heads when they went in to pray to a pagan god. And so he goes, no, 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 when you pray to the true god the way you'd pray to a pagan god, you're bringing dishonor to the true God, submit to Christ's authority, worship Him in a way that reflects your worshiping Him and not worshiping the pagan gods. In the culture of the day, women would wear a piece of cloth pulled over their heads like a modern shawl or a scarf to indicate she was married. And so in that culture, for a woman to take off the shawl and to let her hair loose would have meant that she was saying, basically, hey, I'm available. It would have been dishonoring her head, her husband, because the action would have been seen as rejecting him, rejecting his leadership, and declaring her independence from him. And then when Paul talks about short hair, well, well, short hair was often worn by the pagan prostitutes in the temples. And in the Old Testament, a woman's head was to be completely shaved if she was found to be adulterous. So Paul says to these women who are flaunting all the social customs of their days day and praying and prophesying with their heads uncovered, says, even if not, your actions are making you appear like you're adulterous. Your actions are making you feel like you're rejecting your husband or, or you're even worshiping like pagan prostitutes. So basically, Paul's message is, listen, be careful how you use your freedom in Christ in the gathered worship of the church. Make sure that in exercising your freedom, you're not causing others to stumble. Which, for those of you that have been tracking with 1 Corinthians, you know that that's been Paul's message over the last few chapters. 1 Corinthians 8-9 says, Take care that this right of yours doesn't somehow become a stumbling block. As much as we struggle to understand it, whatever was going on with head coverings in the church was becoming disruptive. New freedoms were being found and they were being used in ways that were distracting from worship. They were disrupting and confusing people. And Paul says, men and women, in your newfound freedom in Christ, pray and prophesy in the gathered assembly of church, but don't exercise those freedoms in a way that becomes a stumbling block. In a modern day example, if a Christian woman went to the Middle East to a Middle Eastern culture and hopes to be a missionary to those people while she is free in Christ to wear shorts and a t-shirt and she would have no problem doing so were she here in the United States, she would likely choose to set aside that freedom and dress more modestly than she otherwise might have in order not to put a stumbling block in the way of anyone hearing and receiving the gospel. And that's the message of Paul to the church in Corinth. He's saying, are you exercising your freedom in ways that are putting unnecessary stumbling blocks in the way of people learning about Christ? 
And verse 7, Paul says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he's the image and glory of God. Woman's the glory of man. And when Paul talks about glory, he's talking about the idea of making someone look good. You know, for example, as parents, when our children do something or they achieve something, then it might reflect well upon us. We might say that they are our glory. They're making us look good. And Paul says, when men and women, men and women, make sure that all of your actions in worship are bringing glory where it's due, whether that's done by covering or uncovering your head. Make sure that you are bringing glory where glory's due. And with the statement, Paul's not denying that women can directly bring glory to God, but he's saying, worship in ways that reflect your submission to God's design. So again, consider how your exercise of your freedoms might become a stumbling block. And he reminds the Corinthians again of the creation order in verses 9, 8, and 9. You can see it there. And again, the creation order itself is the rooting of this teaching. And then Paul throws us this curveball in verse 10 we have to mention. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Well, this is a confusing passage. The best guess is that angels are witnesses to our worship. And Paul says this to give gravity to what he's teaching. It's 1 Timothy 5.21, In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ and the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudice, doing nothing from partiality. So again, in the presence of Christ and the elect angels. Angels are witnesses. They're witnessing the worship of the church. And Paul mentions this to give gravity to his comments although it's an obscure statement to our understanding. And so having spoken again about man's priority in creation, having talked about angels, Paul makes a disclaimer in 11 and 12. He says, I don't want you to think that women are somehow inferior with these commands. Remember that man and woman are interdependent. Woman was created from man. Man is now born from woman. Verse 12, for as woman was made from man, so man's now born of woman. All things are from God. Male and female are equal. They're interdependent, but their roles are different. Men and women are equal, but distinct. And he ends on that note in verses 14 and 15. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears his long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. So Paul says, don't deny, disparage, or downplay God-given differences between men and women. You should look like what you are. According to the culture in which you are in, men should look like men. Women should look like women. Present yourselves in a public manner consistent with what you are. Consistent with what God has created you to be. Glorify the wisdom and goodness of God in the order of His creation. And in Corinthian culture in that day, it would have been shorter hair for men and longer hair for women. So to not do so would be to deny the goodness of what God's created. It would be to deny that male and female are distinct. It would be a confusion of God's good design. And moreover, in the Corinthian church, in Corinth at that time, long hair on men or short hair on women often was a sign of being a practicing homosexual. So further violating God's design for men, women, and sexuality. So, so Paul's message here at the very end is he says, don't try to interchange, exchange, or make strange what God has arranged as good. God created male and female. He made them equal. He made them distinct. He made them complementary. He made them for one another. And the way that you handle yourself in worship, the way that you move through this world, should reflect that reality. And church, we today are not bound by the particular cultural practices of the text, but we might ask, what are the universal principles? The way I approach worship and the way I move through this world, is it reflective of the goodness and wisdom of God's order? The way that I live as a man or as a woman, does it bring glory to God by honoring His good creation? In the way I dress, speak, and live, am I disparaging, downplaying, or denying my uniqueness as a man or as a woman? Will my identity and my sexuality be defined by what God has made me to be? Or what my sin-twisted desires and my culture and rebellion against Christ tells me I am? Am I in a proper relationship to God? Am I in a proper relationship to my husband or to my wife? Am I in a proper relationship to the church? Are there relationships where I'm not submitting as I should be? 
Husbands, are you leading and loving your wives, taking responsibility and initiative, loving your wife as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her? Are you practicing rights and freedoms in your life and in ways that are unnecessarily putting stumbling blocks in the ways of others receiving or growing in the gospel? Friends, this passage raises all kinds of questions. It gives some instructions and it leaves a lot of questions still unanswered. But the point of the passage is the same point that Paul has been making throughout this whole section, which I think is summarized well in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Paul says in the gathered worship of the church, in your relationships with husband and wife, in your relationships in the church, are you glorifying God with your identity, with your sexuality, with your submission, with your marriage, with your worship? In whatever you do, church, will it be done for the glory of God? And for everything else this passage might try to talk about, that is the question that we're left with. So how will you and I answer it? Let's pray. Okay, God, that was a lot. And Father, I ask that the stuff that we need to remember, we'd remember. And the stuff that can be forgotten, go ahead and let it be forgotten. But Father, whatever your message was for each one of us, in that passage. I pray, Lord, that you would bring it to mind. I pray that you would change our hearts. I pray that you would cause us to follow and to do exactly what we were just talking about. Whether we eat or drink, whether we worship, in all of our relationships, and all that we say and do, may we do it all for your glory and for your name's sake. Father, lead us and guide us to follow and to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.